On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton website, with Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamprin today, we're talking about whether or not the federal government has missed an opportunity to grow the economy through the COVID situation rather than simply redistributing redistributing, I'll say that word correctly, wealth. John Iveson from the National Post joins us. We're talking about mental health and sleep. Apparently, there's a connection between people who have mental health issues and sleep problems. Not always, often. We will be talking about the affordability of living in Canada. BDO has done its affordability index, its update for the year. How affordable is this country? How are people doing? You'll want to stick around for that. David Aiken joins us to talk about the Prime Minister's visit to BC yesterday. That was uncomfortable, wasn't it, at times? David will explain. Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us to talk about urban boundary expansion. And we talked to the author of a new book about all the Toronto Maple Leafs championships since 1967. Yes, you heard that right. Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We have heard over the last number of months and months and months and months about the amount of spending that Canada has done over the COVID time, A, to get us through, and B, with the phrase that keeps coming up, to build back better. What does build back better mean? Well, presumably that we have a stronger growing economy when we come out of this, but will we? John Iveson, columnist with the National Post, has written a piece with the headline, How Trudeau Wasted a Chance to Spark Canadian Economic Growth During the Pandemic. John joins us now. John, how are you tonight? Today? This morning? (laughs) I know when it is. I'm excellent. Thank you. Uh, Listen, I want to read something from your column and uh, tell me what what this means. Here's a quote. A significant number of members are concerned that for all his talk about building back better, Justin Trudeau is wasting the opportunity provided by the pandemic to spark the growth needed to ensure continued rising prosperity. What do you mean by that? What What is the wasted part that has been missed here? Well, I was kind of riffing off a, a comment that was made by a Nobel Prize winning economist called Paul Romer, who coined the phrase, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste back in uh, 2004. Uh, Romer is coming to Ottawa uh, next week, I believe, to talk to a a summit organized by a group called Coalition for a Better Future. And that's really an umbrella for 100 organizations, including universities, think tanks, uh, the Business Council of Canada, the Chambers of Commerce, charities. It's going to be hosted by uh, and co-chaired by Anne McClellan, who was the former Liberal Deputy Prime Minister and ex-Conservative Party Deputy Leader Lisa Raitt. And I think that, that, that all these people are concerned that the kind of policy field there's a vacuum in the policy field and that the federal government is missing when it comes to ensuring growth coming out of this pandemic and um, you know the government has been very uh, paid a lot of lip service to to uh, building back better and and policies like childcare, which it, it claims is an economic policy I think most people would think it was more of a social policy and even in its budget in 2021, it was claiming that, um, you know, this was all about uh, building a, an economy for the, for the new normal. Um, you know, when people like David Dodge, the former uh, Bank of Canada governor, looked at that $100 billion in new spending in the 2021 budget, he said only about 25% of it was for growth. The rest was for personal and government consumption. Hmm. And so, and so the real criticism that I think a lot of people have, and I think that what I had in this piece was that 
the government has kind of resigned itself to the fact that the economy is going to grow very slowly, partly because the population is aging. And because of that, it's not about trying to grow the, the economic pie. It's about redistributing it and divvying it up and making sure there's less inequality among in the existing amount of uh, resources and cash that's available. And I think that a lot of the people who are going to attend this conference and a lot of people around the country are concerned that the government isn't really focused on ensuring that the prosperity that Canadians have enjoyed for generations is maintained for the next generation. And John, I think, you know, as I say, moving money around rather than growing money for sure is, is a huge issue, but you know better than anybody. Uh, everything is politics. Everything is politics. And, you know, tax the rich, it's, it's, a, it's an enticing phrase that gets thrown around by a lot of people in this country. And so, you know, we may not be able to grow the, the economy the way we like, but as long as you go after the rich people and, and you know, soak them to pay for all these things, it, it seems as though anyway, there's a reasonably big swath of the public who's fine with that as opposed to the growing of the economy, isn't there? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we saw that in the, uh, in the last election where, uh, you know, the, the idea of trying to make Canadians more productive uh, was not even discussed, not even by the Conservative Party. And it really was a discussion about a kind of zero-sum game. You know, the zero-sum game being that if one person gains and somebody else loses, and in this zero-sum game that was being discussed by the NDP and the Liberals, it was really about ensuring that the top people uh, earn less and that money is redistributed. You know, whereas, you know, I think that most of Canadians would be happy with the idea that if there was equality of opportunity, then the equality of outcomes matters less. There's, there's not a, a, I don't think there's a, a massive jealousy among the population that they don't want people to be successful. Um, they want to be successful themselves and they want their children to be successful. But that, I think, doesn't mean that uh, the success of other people should, should be limited. And I think, you know, the, the thinking was really crystallized by a group called the Senate Prosperity Action Group. It was a group of 12 senators who put out a report last week, uh, last month, um, and it had some pretty damning statistics. You know, Canada's the 10th largest economy, but in global competitiveness, it's 14th. In GDP per capita, it's 15th. In productivity, it's 18th. In ease of doing business, it's 23rd. In research and development spending, it's 18th. Uh, not only is our position uh, not great uh, at the moment, relatively, it's gotten worse over time. Our GDP per capita was 15% lower than the U.S. in 1970. It's 25% lower now. Our output per worker is really dismal, not just compared to the U.S., but compared to the G7 average. And uh, some people might be familiar with the U.S. economist Paul, Paul Krugman, he said that productivity is not everything when it comes to maintaining standard of living, but it's almost everything. Hmm. And I think that that is not really uh, appreciated by this government, that we have to do better as far as just everyday Canadians doing better, producing more, being more industrious, being more productive. And, and really the way to do that is to encourage businesses to invest more so that you know what, your average worker is producing more in any given hour. And our... They have, the, the Liberal government, I think, has not been too concerned about creating an environment that is conducive to, to investment. John, let me, read you, let me read you one more line on that point that you wrote here in this piece. 
There is a general acceptance, even among free market conservatives, that new rules will govern the economy of the near future, a landscape where governments are more involved in planning growth and resilience. I got to say, if you're someone who wants the growth of the economy as opposed to simply moving money around, that would sound concerning because governments by design are not designed to make money. Right, but I think that we're, what we're seeing all around the world is, is um, the involvement of governments in almost an industrial strategy. You know, you're seeing uh, governments getting involved in, for example, setting up factories to build vaccines, which this government has done. Right. Um, you know, I think that, that that is a fact of life that most uh, conservatives even are, are sort of resigned to, that, that we, we have entered a new landscape where the government is going to get much more involved in many facets of the economy. Um, and while this government has, has done that to some extent, I mean, I think that there, are, there, are, there are other things that it could do which would be equally beneficial. You know, for, you know, I was just about to say about the, the, the investment levels in Canada, you know, they're, they're 75% lower per worker than they are in the U.S., because there's a perception that in this country it's difficult to get projects off the ground. Our tax rates at corporate level and at, at, uh, uh, at personal level are dis- a disadvantage to Canada. You know, our, our marginal top rate when you combine provinces and, and feds is 53% compared to 46% in the U.S. So, you know, there are things that governments can do to make a place more attractive to private business. And then, even then, if they're getting involved in, in some aspect of it, I mean, you know, this is a government that owns a pipeline, for goodness sake. So, you know, the, the whole picture is kind of concerning. I was saying that, uh, you know, I used to find that if this was the Starship Enterprise, a yellow alert light would be flashing. <laughs> Shields and phasers would, would be on standby because it's not quite red alert, but there are enough warning signs that people are getting worried. John Iveson from the National Post. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you. All the best. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You know, getting up at weird hours of the day, you know, it can be tough on you. And not just those who would do it for work. There seems to be some new study, some new information, some new evidence that poor sleep and mental illness can be related. Now, I don't think... And my next guest will jump in and tell me, but I don't think that one plus one always equals two, but there can be a connection between the two. There's a study that says people diagnosed with mental illness in their life were more likely to have had poor sleep quality or have it now, which of course, the the first thing that comes to my mind is which came first, the chicken or the egg, the poor sleep leading to problems or problems leading to poor sleep. Dr. Sridjoy Tripathi is a senior author on the study and a scientist at the Kremble Center for Neuroinformations. He joins us now. Doctor, thank you for doing this today. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? I'm, you fanta- I'm fantastic. It's bright and early, so great time to talk about sleep because this, yeah. <laughs> this seems like the perfect time. Um, is the suggestion, and I want to ask that first question first and then dive into this, is the suggestion, or do we know, is the suggestion that poor sleep can actually affect your mental health or that the mental health problem is causing you not to sleep well? Uh, Scott, that's a fantastic question. Um, honestly, the, the relationship, you know, in scientific speak, we would say the relationship is bi-directional. So just like you said, uh, poor sleep is known to cause uh, alterations in mental illness, and alterations in mental illness are are, are known to cause poor sleep. Um, 
So one clearly affects the other. And actually, with our study, we weren't really able to disentangle whether, you know, you know, which really causes the other. What's new about our study is just the effectively the size of it. We were able to study sleep in a population of 100,000 people from the UK mm. that basically wore these smartwatches for a week. And then by able by effectively analyzing that data, we were able to find which people had uh, sleep alterations, like, you know, things like uh, they woke up more at night, uh, they didn't sleep quite as long, uh, maybe they napped more. And then by looking at which people also had diagnoses of mental illness, we were able to see that the people with uh, past diagnoses of mental illness had more poor sleep quality. And it wasn't necessarily that they had, you know, they either slept longer or they slept uh, shorter, but they tended to get up more at night or they uh, they went to bed later. Part of this surprises me, and I'll tell you why, because I I mean, I've known some people who have had depression and one of the symptoms or one of the things that I've heard from them is that they want to sleep a lot, that there's this desire, they, they, they do sleep more. And I guess that's not a blanket statement, but that was part of the, the symptoms that, that I would hear. But I, I always thought that, especially people with depression or anxiety, it was more sleeping. Yeah, it, you know, we were really expecting to find that. I think we were, and, and so let me say a bit more about how we're measuring sleep. So like I mentioned, we're sort of using these smartwatch type devices called accelerometers that measure wrist movement. So we're not, you know, you know, us, our study, and like you think about a Fitbit or an Apple Watch, none of these devices are really measuring sleep. They're really measuring like movement or heart rate. And we're using those as proxies for sleep. To measure sleep, you kind of need to put electrodes on the brain, you know, go into a clinic and, uh, you know, sort of have someone wear this like electrode device. It's kind of obtrusive while they're sleeping. So, um, so, you know, we're measuring sort of movement and that's, that's a proxy for sleep. But, um, uh, yeah, so it, I think we, yeah, totally. We were expecting that people with depression, especially, would sleep more. And that's, I mean, I mean, I think that we saw like a slight increase in the amount of people with depression that uh, that they were sleeping. But in general, um, people across with every disorder we studied, um, depression, uh, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia and um, anxiety, they all had what we, you know, what we consider to be like poor sleep quality. They were waking up more at night. And when they were awake at night, it tended to be for longer than um than uh, people without a psychiatric illness. Um, you know, they spent less time, they spent less time sort of in deep sleep at night. And so those are the kind of measurements they were able to pull out of these like smartwatch type devices. Uh, for, for when you're, um, and you're not diagnosing mental illness in this study, you're, you're looking at sleep, but understanding what mental illness constitutes, can mental illness be a temporary thing? For example, I mean, if you are in a period of incredibly high stress in your life that may lead to anxiety, would that be considered, so for that period of time when you're not sleeping well, would that be considered a period of mental illness? Or are we talking people who have had this diagnosed and for a long, long time? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, so, so, so about the study in particular, you know, we looked at people who had a, a past diagnosis of mental illness by looking at basically their, their medical records that were made available as part of this study. Um, but certainly probably most of the people actually in our study were not currently in a, uh, you know, an active episode of mental illness. They were likely, you know, they, they likely been diagnosed at some point in the past. Maybe they sought treatment, maybe they didn't, but they sort of improved on their own. Um, whereas like, and, and probably if we had been able to, you know, specifically hone in on the people in an active episode of mental illness, we probably would have found that those people's sleep patterns would be even worse than the one that the, you know, the changes we were able to see. Um, I just want to mention, like, you know, sort of any of your listeners who 
you know, maybe they've noticed they have poor sleep and they're sort of concerned about their mental illness, like please reach out to your doctor. Um, there's a number of resources you can find about that at CAMH.ca if you're interested. Would this suggest that if if I did have anxiety or depression or some other mental illness, I mean, and again, I, well, yeah, let's leave it there. If, we, if I have some sort of mental illness, would it suggest that if I could take something to help me sleep, that it might reduce my symptoms? I think, you know, and I think that is, you know, that's kind of like the million dollar question. And unfortunately, we weren't really able to address that in our study. But like, in, we're planning a follow, we're planning a number of follow up studies to be done at CAMH among patients who are currently receiving treatment for disorders like depression, and where we're going to give them the same kind of smartwatches that we that the participants in our study uh, received. And then we want to sort of track you know, as they're getting treatment at CAMH and as their depression symptoms are hopefully improving, how is their sleep improving? Um, and what's really exciting about sleep is that, you know, it's a what we call in science like a modifiable risk factor. So basically, you know, we could give people tips and tr- tools and tricks to improve their sleep. We can give them some medications to improve their sleep. And you could imagine that, you know, sort of rather than, uh, or maybe in addition to, you know, current treatments for addressing mental illness, if you could actively target someone's, try to improve someone's sleep, then maybe you would improve their mental illness symptoms down the line. That's something that's really exciting and something that, you know, is going to be part of a number of studies that we're going to plan at CAMH in the coming years. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating topic because of the possibility, and look, I, I don't think you, and certainly I don't want to be guessing at this, I don't think anyone's going to say if you sleep better, you're going to cure your mental illness. That's not the point at all, but if this is something that could help, boy, what a relatively simple, perhaps, way to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's the that's kind of the beauty of this. I mean, I, I mean, and again, like I think the we still need to do more work to really know for sure. But I I completely agree. I think that's the opportunity of, you know, addressing you know, and certainly even if let's say let's say relationship between sleep and mental illness is not so strong, at least like if, pe- if people are sleeping better, they're probably going to be happier, and they're probably going to yeah. be you know better able to uh, go about their days. I imagine many of your listeners, it's probably quite early for them, many of them probably didn't sleep so well last night. I know I certainly didn't to wake up so early to have this interview with you. So it's early for your host, to, too. You know, to get <laughs> uh, Dr. Shrijoy Tripathi, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for taking a few minutes. You're very welcome, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Talk a little money, as the song says. Because the BDO Affordability Index is out, looking at Canadians' debt loads and their saving ability and their spending and their standard of living and all all those things that every time we a government talks, these are the kinds of things they say. We want Canada to be more affordable. We want people to be able to prosper and live. We want people to be able to save and afford and all these kind of things. What do you think it said? I mean... Think about it for five seconds here, and then we're going to go on and find out. But what do you think? Do you think we're doing well? Do you think we're not doing so well? What do you think the BDO Affordability Index would have said this time? Well, let's find out if you're right. I want to bring in Jeffrey Lewis, Senior Vice President and Partner in the BDO Debt Solutions Practice. He joins us now. Jeffrey, thanks for this today. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I am excellent, thank you. So let's answer that question. What did it say? Are we in a glorious state of financial independence and greatness, or are these tougher times? Well, actually, it depends where you live in the country, to be honest, because we've got a tale of two Canadas really has emerged from the um, from the survey that we did. It finds that um, Canadians that have a income of at least $100,000 uh, typically live on the West Coast uh, in BC um, and are university educated have actually benefited from the, from the pandemic. Their, uh, their, their finances have actually got better. 
But then we see the other side of the coin where we see, um, um, you know, mothers of, of, of a certain demographic, certain age group, um, typically living in the Maritimes, um, lower income, less than 50,000, they're actually, they're actually uh, their finances have got worse. So, you know, these uh, a lot of these um, uh, people living in that demographic, they've actually taken on debt for the first time or increased their debt during the pandemic. So uh, we're seeing a big divide. The divide gets bigger between what we call the haves and the have-nots. Has this not always, though, been the case? Has there not? I mean, Atlantic provinces have kind of always been behind. And, and I'm not dismissing it as unimportant, but is this is this not a similar story to what we generally see? Yeah, we see similar stories. I mean, there is, as you say, there is, um, you know, there are marked increases across the country. And it is, you know, it does happen year on year, but it's got worse during the pandemic. You know, the, the divide's got bigger. Um, you know, 26 percent, one quarter of Canadians have incurred at least one new debt during the pandemic. Mm. Um, you know, and 70 percent of those say this new debt has made their standard of living worse. You know, it's, it's really worrying because, you know, we, we carried on the survey and we asked them again, you know, do you feel confident they'll be able to restore your living standard to pre-pandemic levels. And, you know, just over half, 51% said, no, they don't think they will be able to. Yeah, and that, that is a stunning number. I mean, there's a lot of numbers in this, and that's a stunning number that, that many of them think that they won't get back, even with time, I guess, that they, they are now in such an uphill climb that they won't be able to get back there. That's, I mean, that's pretty disconcerting, isn't it? That that, that many people it's, feel so behind the eight ball? Yeah, it is, it is. Um, but, you know, there's, there is, no, there's not... It's, it's like the end of the tunnel. I mean, there are things that you can do if you do feel that you've got um, debt issues. So, you know, um, we we look at budgeting at, at, uh, at BDO with experts in personal finance. So, you know, just by looking at your budget to see where your money's going every month, um, you know, just making small changes could actually help you. But one of the uh, concerns that the, um, the um, survey found was that, you know, just the basic living costs is, is causing people concern. So, you know, we looked at people's um, current income, their current expenses, and what they look at for the future. And one of the things we look at is retirement. And you know, when we looked at retirement, a lot of people said to us, "Well, you know, we can't afford to save for retirement because, really, we can't afford to put food on the table." And you know, high percentages of Canadians, uh, you know, said that one of their biggest concerns was just paying their basic standard of living. Of course, we know costs are going up due to inflation levels, and um, you know, wages haven't kept um, haven't kept pace. A lot of things you just said right there. Let's try and break a couple of those out here. Um, three in 10 Canadians, according to your study, who are over 55 say, and this is a quote, they are very far behind. Uh, I don't know how people would define very far behind if there's a tangible number or if that's just a, uh, a sense that they have, but uh, they're talking about their retirement savings. Uh, again, talking about concerning things, if, if, if 30% of Canadians feel like they're not going to have money to retire, what do you do? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and that's to the, the 55 and older age group. So, right. you know, uh, what do you do? Well, you talk to a trustee. So, you know, we see a lot of people actually that are coming up to retirement. Um, so one of the worst things you can do is go into retirement with a fixed income and still carry debt loads. So actually a lot of people contact a trustee such as myself, uh, a BDO Debt Solutions to say, well, you know, Jeff, I'm going into retirement, I'm carrying debt. How do I deal with it? And there are things you can do. So um, typically when you see a trustee, We'll look at your budget. We'll look at your unique circumstances and try and find a solution for you that will help you to, um, you know, get out of debt in a, in a way that works for you. So there's two things that we can do. Um, 
other than looking at your budget and helping you to really make some changes. If you need some help from a trustee uh, on a more formal level, then we'll file what's called a consumer proposal, where typically you'll pay back anything from 25 to 50% of the debt, um, interest-free over five years, um, really based on what you can afford. And the creditors accept this because they know that um, um, you know it's it's a, it's better for you. Um, there's there's legalities in place that that, that will make the thing possible for them. Uh, and then if of course that's not possible, then we can always play into bankruptcy and give you a very fresh start. So either way, you're going to move ahead with no debt. Um, so in any age really, but even in retirement, as we said, you move ahead with no debt and you know carry on successful life um, with healthy finances. Jeff, we only have 20 seconds here, but one other thing that really surprised me was you said 43% of Canadians have accrued debt during the COVID crisis. This the reason it surprised me is because we were hearing stories a little while ago that all this money was being saved because people weren't out spending. So was that just a few people that were doing all that saving, or was that a erroneous report back then? No, so some could, well, obviously people do still save. And, you know, there are Canadians that still save. Um, you know, but the higher percentages of Canadians are not saving at all. So, mm. and that's the concern. So, you know, when, when um, you know, more people would save less than those saving, then obviously it's going to lead to issues. So, and, it, you know, what it does in the future, it gives you no uh, that fallback cushion, financial cushion to fall back on. So, you know, one of the things you can just do for yourself very quickly is, you know, look at your budget. If you have a little bit extra per month, just try and put it away every month and just try and build up some sort of cushion that you can use, um, you know, you, something, if, if yeah. a financial emergency arises. Do yeah. something. Jeffrey Lewis, Senior Vice President and Partner at BDO Debt Solutions. Thank you, Jeffrey. Really appreciate this today. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I know the Prime Minister was in BC yesterday meeting with residential school survivors and chiefs, but I wonder how that went. Well, this was supposed to be, I guess, the make good trip after the missing the Truth and Reconciliation Day when the Prime Minister was in Tofino. That's how it's been widely portrayed. I want to bring in David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, to talk about this. David, how are you this morning? Sorry, I just when you hooked on, I missed you, Scott. What was the first question there? Oh, I haven't got to. I just was introducing you, but I, we're just talking oh. about the fact that the Prime Minister was out there yesterday. And is all forgiven now? Is everything now no. water under the bridge and all better? No, no, it isn't. It's it's a, as and I'm, this is Indigenous leaders that I'm I'm reporting their views, and they gave them several times. Uh, from the stage of the ceremony yesterday, with the Prime Minister sitting right there, um, they're they're willing to accept his apology uh, for missing their first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation in Kamloops. And just remember the backstory here: this is Kamloops, the first nation where we had our first discovery of those uh, unmarked burial sites with kids. More than two hundred, uh, uh, more than two hundred bodies in, discovered in an unmarked burial site at a residential school. That was in May. The Prime Minister has not visited this particular community since. They sent him two invitations, not one, two invitations, including one to say, why don't you join us on the first ever National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And as we all know, uh, instead of being there, uh, or at any community to to mark this particular day, uh, the Prime Minister was in his Air Force Challenger flying from Ottawa to a family vacation in Tofino, B.C. And in fact, if you look at the flight path, he would have been flying right over Kamloops, pretty much at the time they were having their ceremony. And so yesterday, um, you know, he, uh, Trudeau got it, essentially, from the leaders in the community for doing that. They said it was ter- ter- terribly hurtful, they were angry, they were shocked when they heard about this. And so he showed up and, you know, said he was sorry. 
the thing is, beyond that, uh, all these indigenous leaders are saying, you know, enough with the empty apologies, enough with the, you know, the the um, the hollow words. They want some action. They'd like some funding for a healing center. They'd like some funding. This is just not this community, but lots of other communities funding to find. Uh, other burial sites. And then there's the broader Indigenous agenda. Uh, right now, the federal government, for example, is weighing whether or not it ought to take a course to the Supreme Court in which the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ordered the federal government um, to pay kids who were taken out of their homes uh, and placed in foster care in the last 15 or 20 years. This is thousands of First Nations kids. The Canadian Human Rights Tribunal said those kids uh, should be paid $40,000 in compensation for the damage they've suffered. And the Trudeau government has took them took that ruling to court, and uh, they could go to the Supreme Court. And Indigenous leaders going, what are you doing? They just, you know, pay the bill, essentially. So uh, that's just, and then we've got drinking water advisories, still 32 of them in communities around the country. The Trudeau government promised to end those drinking water advisories on First Nations in 2015, and Indigenous leaders are kind of going, a lot of promises, a lot of hope, uh, haven't uh, they've not seen as much action, and so yesterday was really uh, Trudeau getting in it, you know, from all sides, uh, and giving credit for showing up and sitting there. He spent the entire day there, uh, but uh, yeah, they let him know sort of where where mm. they were at. Well, you know, yeah, you say giving it to him or taking it, whatever. They really did. I mean, we don't see this all that often with a leader of a country sitting there and someone, as you say, taking them to task. I mean, whether you are a Trudeau supporter or a Trudeau absolute opponent, it was almost uncomfortable. It was so direct what they were saying to him with, to his face right there. Yeah, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a couple of unique things about that. I think you hit on on the obvious one, which is um, there really wasn't any punches pulled. They were polite. They were respectful, but there was no question about where, where this is the indigenous leaders were talking about, uh, from B.C., but also the national, uh, the national chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Roseanne Archibald, who's from northern Ontario. Um, they were very direct um, about what they were looking for from their federal government. I mean, it, Roseanne Archibald, the national chief, she was like, we, we want people charged uh, with, uh, you know, these are, these are, as she said, our babies are buried at these residential schools. And, and they they want people charged. I mean, they were some in some cases. There's evidence these babies were just sort of dumped uh, after uh, dying at a residential school. So she was very direct. Now the other thing that is is quite unique. And again, um, the prime minister of a G7 country, we're a G7 country, typically doesn't spend an entire day. If if the prime minister is going to have a meeting with a First Nations group, um, it's a morning. It's uh, a, a couple of hours. Uh, it's, and it's certainly not a full day in front of television cameras. So we'll take that again as evidence of Trudeau's contrition, mm. that he was essentially you know, willing to share this with the entire country about how he kind of um, made a boo-boo by not going to, to Fino, or sorry, not going to Kamloops on September the 30th. And it, was, you know, it, it puts it all more in, in sort of um, the, the failure to go to Kamloops on, on September the 30th. Watching that ceremony... You just wondered, he was going for a family vacation to Tofino. He was on the way to Tofino. He, his plane literally could have stopped. And what a learning environment for his entire family had they decided to participate in that first uh, or the one on uh, the event on September 30th. Instead, you know, it was a, it was a full day. Um, Trudeau's back in Ottawa now, and 
I guess we're now looking to the Capitol will be sworn in on Monday, and we've got a throne speech on November 22nd. Where will Indigenous issues figure in the agenda? I mean, I've been talking to a lot of uh, MPs about to get back to Parliament, and, you know, there's a lot of priorities that the government will be asked to look at. Uh, affordable housing is one I keep hearing from a lot of Liberals. Uh, the economy, Liberals are talking about we've got to do something about that. Long-term care homes, got to make sure we continue to work with provinces, protect people in long-term care homes. There's a lot on the on the federal government's plate in the newscast just before we came on we talked about the relief programs that are going to end uh for some businesses and individuals and yet indigenous leaders are very concerned that their issues will somehow get lost in the shuffle so the people that the prime minister names to cabinet on monday he's got three ministers right now who are focused on indigenous issues um you know everybody's going to be looking to say uh, is it the same three do you want to see some changes there uh, do we want some heavy hitters from cabinet to take those files? That will be sort of the first indication um, of what's going on in, in, in terms of the agenda. And then in the throne speech, of course, it'll be the first throne speech ever read by an indigenous person, mm. an Inuit woman, Mary Simon, our governor general. So another symbol, uh, of course, but people are looking for action. Uh, David, we have 30 seconds, but th- there is the policy you talk about. There's also the politics of this. Uh, we did a poll here on CHML yesterday, our daily morning poll, asking people whether the trip to... Kamloops was reconciliation or PR, and overwhelmingly, 87% of people said this was just performance. Do you think that what happened yesterday repairs that a bit or puts him in a better position, or do you think the cynicism is harder to overcome than that? Uh, I think it's uh, it's going to be a little harder to overcome. Um, <clears throat> there was definitely a PR element, and <clears throat> excuse me, and Indigenous leaders themselves were very worried that this trip was nothing more than Trudeau trying to buff up his political resume, essentially. And uh, uh, the, the fact that the indigenous leaders played such a prominent role in the ceremony yesterday, Trudeau did speak, of course, um, I think might tip it over to it helps a little on reconciliation. But there's no doubt there was definitely an aspect of politics to it. Uh, you know, even the staunchest liberal defenders uh, looked at that Tofino trip and went, you know, the optics just didn't look so good mm-hmm. there. And Trudeau himself, of course. Apologized, right. absolutely. David Aiken, yeah. chief political correspondent for Global News. Appreciate you joining us so early this morning, David. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem. Cheers. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Urban boundary expansion. If we had told you that we were going to be talking and the city was going to be engaged in a vigorous discussion about urban boundary expansion a while ago, you probably would have said, what? Uh, But the city is engaged in a discussion about urban boundary expansion. And remarkably, there is a lot of passion on an issue that, as I say, up until recently, probably would have made people yawn more than be totally enraptured. But boy, oh boy, people are in on this one right now. Uh, And now we seem to have a, a bit of a showdown between the province and the city. I want to bring in the mayor of the city of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, to join us. Mr. Mayor, thank you for doing this today. Thank you, and thank you for uh, playing Foo Fighters, one of my favorites. Well, you know what? We'll, we'll, we'll make sure we do another Foo Fighters before the morning is over, just because you said All so. Right. Uh, okay. This this thank story um, has, be, as I say, this is an issue that probably for a lot of people would have been so dry before this all started. They never would have paid attention. But now a lot of people engaged. The Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing wrote an opinion piece in The Spectator suggesting that the city should expand, I guess, is his simple message, and you did not sound entirely thrilled with that message, or was it just the way it was said? No, I, I, I respect the uh, the minister's uh, opinion, and I, I really kind of enjoy the fact that uh, that these issues are getting broad community interest. 
you know, there was a time when when infrastructure, uh, you know, was a conversation that nobody wanted to have, and, and we kind of brought it to the fore. And, and certainly, urban boundary expansion is a significant issue. It's a significant growth uh, issue for the city of Hamilton. It's not either. Neither one of the options are a no growth option. It's just a matter of where do you grow. And uh, obviously, the the minister's opinion is that uh, that we need to uh, you know, add additional additional uh, 1,350 hectares of uh, land to accommodate uh, some 82,000 new households. You know, I, I, uh, you know, we uh, we've had projections from the province previously, a previous government, in fact, and we did uh, you know we looked at the urban boundary expansion issue and ended up with the nodes and corridors development opportunities that identify where we might grow. But we've never met the uh, the, uh, the population projections that the province has laid out for us uh, in past uh, iterations of our urban boundary uh, discussion. So I think it's reasonable for us to have a skeptical eye towards the uh, you know the number of additional household units they're they're proposing we're going to need. Uh, but that doesn't mean we dismiss the issue either. And so uh, where does that growth happen? I will tell you that from my perspective, uh, we, we are now investing billions of dollars in an LRT in the inner city, uh, you know, half, half about, uh, you know, improving the public transportation and, and, you know, making climate change uh, benefits available for an electrified system. But the other half is about the renewal and redevelopment and housing opportunities that come with uh, the LRT development. And I, I very much like to see that play out before I decide on whether or not we should be adding any more greenfield additional greenfield to the urban boundary. So so expand within the existing footprint before we expand outwards. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, and, and there's there I mean and that's not a perfect science, I have to admit. Uh, you know, again we're we're dealing with, you know, 30 year out projections and we're dealing with anticipated growth and development. Uh, you know, I, I, I fully expect that the LRT is going to provide uh, really significant renewal and housing opportunities all the way along the corridor. And, you know, evidence of that can be uh, can be seen in Kitchener-Waterloo, where they've seen that and then some. And when we look at our corridor, uh, it is ripe for renewal. You know, 500 meters either side of uh, the LRT going off to Barton Street, over to Cannon Street, uh, potentially Delaware and other locations, all of that becomes renewal, uh, higher density, more unit uh, dwelling, hopefully affordable to a large degree, and, and market uh, units that, that are going to become available all the way along the corridor. And that, that's going to happen over the next five to, to ten years. And uh, I, would, I would very much like to see how that plays out before I make a decision around let's add some more greenfield to the, uh, the urban boundary. I said uh, probably about a year ago that uh, expanding into El Frida would be a mistake. Uh, I still believe that today. Uh, you know, there may be some pockets of, uh, of expansion that we could look at because there, there are some anomalies in the, in the system where, you know, there's a, there's a strange kind of boundary uh, on the mountain that's carved out, uh, you know, one piece of one, – one area of property, I think it's about 20 acres – that uh, that just doesn't make any sense. So there may be some areas where we can make adjustments, but I think by and large, I'm I'm on for holding a firm urban boundary, and maximizing the opportunity of redevelopment in the inner city in spaces that we already know are development opportunities, and we have no shortage of parking lots, uh, you know, land spaces that are sitting idle and vacant. 
you know, older buildings that are ripe for renewal and repurposing. So, uh, you know, that is an opportunity that I think we shouldn't squander. Uh, much has been made in recent days about the uh, public poll, the survey that was sent out that got the 90% opposition. How much weight yeah. should that be given? Well, I don't want to dismiss the the public sentiments out there, uh, you know, in any way, shape, or form. It's a it's a good opinion at a moment in time. It's a data source that uh, certainly will will be a factor in you know some of the decision making. But you know, predominantly, we need to base it on on uh, you know the information we're going to receive from our staff. Uh, obviously, there's going to be a peer review report that that is going to come to us. There's going to be a financial analysis provided. Lots of detailed, uh, specific information around the impacts of uh, expansion as well as the impacts of not expanding. And I think that's, that needs to be the basis and foundation of our decision making. And, you know, in a, in a, it, you know lots of opinions out there, and I, I respect the fact that, you know, numbers of people have weighed in. Lots of other people have uh, have just played along and said, "Okay, I'll I'll jump on the bandwagon and uh, and you know put my opinion forward on both sides." Uh, we've had you know the development community obviously right. weigh in with uh, their own poll uh, with uh, some very specific questions. Uh, all of them are are uh, I think valuable, but certainly don't in my mind uh, you know form the basis of a decision. Uh, I think all of that will will be part of our overall picture that uh, will help help inform the decision-making process for all members of council. Mr. Mayor, I have about 100 more things I want to ask about. Alas, we are out of time, so we'll have to uh, do this another day, but I really appreciate taking a few minutes today. It goes so fast. It really Thank does. Thank you so very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let us wrap up Good Morning Hamilton today. By talking about a new book that's out, uh, this is a real book. I'm just, this is not made up. The title, The Complete History of Toronto Maple Leafs Championships in the Last Six Decades. Yes, ponder that for a second. You will, you will see. It is available on Amazon. The author is Stan Lee Slump. Hmm, might be, might be a nom de plume. I'm not sure, but he joins us now. Stan Lee, how are you today? Well, good morning, Scott, and thank you for inviting me on your show. Well, listen, I got this book, and it made me laugh. Absolutely, it made me laugh. Let me, let me go through. So th- it's the Complete History of Leafs Championships. Let's go through the six chapters you've got here. Uh, chapter 1, 1968 to 1977, 34 pages. I would describe the writing as sparse. Well, that's pretty accurate. I think the championship record speaks for itself. What more is there to say? Okay. 78 to 87. Uh, again, sparse. Yes. I, I was searching uh, high and low uh, <laughs> through the uh, the annals of, of sports history, and I couldn't come up with too much more than what's there. Chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6. Sparse, 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 and sparse. In fact, uh, if people don't get it, it is a legitimate 200-page book that has no words except for the foreword in it. It is white page. And, and do you remember what you wrote in your foreword? Uh, yes. I, uh, the author's note says, uh, I have no words. <laughs> Where did the idea come from? Because this, I mean, look, for, for some Leaf fans, uh, they may be outraged by this, but I think it's hilarious. Where did the idea come from? Well, really, Scott, it's not a, a cheap shot at least fans or um, at the organization. It's really a, a tongue-in-cheek attempt to uh, put some light on uh, uh, this, the, the record of the last six decades and 
and and really to commemorate the record for the longest Stanley Cup drought in NHL history that was set by the Leafs this year. Yeah. So so the Leafs are number one in the NHL. Let's celebrate. Let's let's acknowledge that. You say we. Are you a self-deprecating Leaf fan, or are you a Leaf hater who wants to poke fun at the fans? Well, no. Stan Lee Slump is a sports historian with a soft spot for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Okay, I, I must say. So, they, uh, leaving aside the book, no, we don't want to leave aside the book. It's, it's it is available on Amazon. If you have a Leaf fan in your life who you would like to have a joke with, who can take a joke, be sure they can take a joke before you give this to them. Um, it is there. However, I, there were a couple things in the in the notes that came with the book. There are some things there, and I got to tell you, there was one. There was a lot of things that jumped out at me about how long it's been. I mean, if people go back, the last time the Leafs won a cup, in case people need reminding. Mr. Rogers had not even got started on TV yet. Uh, there was no McDonald's stores in Canada at that time. Uh, I was born six months after the Leafs last won a cup, so I haven't even been alive to see a Maple Leaf Stanley Cup. But I'll tell you, the one thing that really blew my mind, and I, I can't even believe this is true, although I'm trusting that you've come up with the right number. In all the years since they won the cup, the Leafs have only won 19 playoff series. That's stunning. Uh, they, they've- They've won uh, 19 uh, playoff series. Uh, that's right in in uh, their their uh, the history since they won the cup. That is un uh, like that's. But they f- haven't been in the playoffs that much, Scott. That's, no, I know. That's the issue. Do you know? I'll I'll just throw one one more at at you. One in five Canadians were were not alive the last time the Leafs won a playoff series in 2004. Oh, I th- sorry, I thought you were going to say 67. I thought, how is that possible? No, yeah, 2004, no. yeah. Yeah. The, the, you know, the last time they won a playoff series, one in five Canadians were alive. Two out of three Canadians were alive the last time the Leafs won the Cup. That is, that 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 puts puts a little crystallized uh, picture on it. <laughs> the other thing that really blew me away, and this is, if there needs to be any more urgency to win. Now, they do have 53 years before they catch up with the Cubs for droughts, but nonetheless. You're absolutely right. Only nine more years and the mm-hmm. last Leaf Stanley Cup engraving on the on the Stanley Cup will bounce off there as they move them down. So if they don't win in nine years, there will be no Maple Leafs except in the top bowl. Uh, but there will be no Maple Leafs on the cup. That's that is stunning. Yeah, that that would be sad if that uh, happened because uh, the Leafs are still the uh, second winningest Stanley Cup uh, organization in the history of the NHL. And in nine more years, if they don't win, uh, then there will be no record of any Leafs team on the cup. Amazing. Uh, the book is called The Complete History of Toronto Maple Leafs Championships in the Last, 16, in the last Six Decades. Uh, could be 16 coming up. I, uh, Freudian slip. <laughs> Uh, the author is Stan Lee Slump. It really is a book. You can find it on Amazon if you have a Leaf fan in your life who needs a funny gift or maybe something to buy them now for Christmas while you think of it. To, uh, to put. They will not have won a cup before Christmas, so it will still stand if, uh, if you need to get that. Listen, I appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. Pretty funny. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. Have a nice day. You as well. It, it, is a, it is a pretty funny, it is a lark of a book. If you do have someone who's a Leaf fan in your life who can take a joke. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. 
subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.